All right, guys, welcome back to the Fitness in Philosophy podcast. My name is Robbie Gustin. I'm here with OPEX founder, James Fitzgerald. James, how are you doing today? I'm great, Robbie. It's good to be back. Awesome. How's your summer been going? It's been excellent. Um, spending uh, lots of time with my kids and my wife. Um, just because I thought about we celebrated our 15th year of our anniversary yesterday, which was nice. Um, and we're in a great environment where we can just go down the street and have a dinner together and the, the kids are just hanging in the, in the grass by the water. So um, I'm doing really good here. Enjoying my summer. Awesome. Congrats. Yeah. Thank you. Been together for over 20 years and we celebrated 15 years for wedding. What's your, what's your guys go to for special occasion food? Uh, it may not be a necessarily food. I think, I think we just like time together. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, we could probably go anywhere. Um, but uh, we went to this local place. It's called uh, olive and olive and vine, I think, which kind of tells you that they're just really, really steep on the wine selection and wine opportunities, but we don't drink. So it's, uh, so, but the food was still good. We had, um, acorn squash, uh, fries as a starter, which were unbelievable. Um, you just want to think about that. They were made really well with this, uh, spicy aioli. And then we had steak and frit, steaky frit, uh, both of us, uh, we enjoyed that. So, but the time together was even better. That's awesome. That sounds really good. I've never, I mean, I've had lots of different fries, but never acorn squash. It's... Yeah. They were really well done here at this place. If anyone wants to journey to Coeur d'Alene and come to the spot. That's awesome. Yeah. How about you? How are you doing? Well, overall doing well. Yeah. We, uh, we reopened our gym a couple of weeks ago and, uh, things seem to be going pretty well thus far. So excellent. That's good to hear. It's going well. So right. today we're be talking about uh knowledge knowledge and fitness all knowing all knowing right so i thought it would be useful to start out just talking about why why should we even care about knowledge like you know it seems in a certain sense a silly question but i think it's useful to think about why is this important so um it allows us to get at truth and that will probably be its own separate podcast truth and fitness and why truth is important yeah. Um, so that, that's sort of intrinsically worthwhile. And then it allows us to do things, uh, more successful things practically as a result of having that truth, right? Like if you know that objects near the surface of the earth fall at a certain rate, then you are better able to predict, um, you know, what a cannonball is going to do when it, you know, launches from a cannon or, or something to that effect, right? To take a silly, silly example. So, um, that's, you know, those are some basic reasons why knowledge and knowing are important. And, you know, James, you and I were discussing even before this call, a lot going on in the world right now, especially as we're uh, filming this. I think uh, probably something we could say with fairly strong confidence is that a central piece of resolving all that's going on is a distinction between what we know, what we have evidence for, what we have an objective, you know, justification for and versus like opinions or wants or beliefs. And that's, that's why I think knowledge can be really uh, important and useful. Yeah. 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 I think about also for uh, knowledge around um, competency um, in uh, maybe the, the person who's looking to learn about fitness, how 
uh, they would love it if there was a certain definition of knowledge that a fitness professional has, you know, uh, so that, you know, we all can gain trust in um, the purveyors of that knowledge, that, that, that information that they're trying to share with other people. It'd be really great if there was like some divining aspect of <laughs> what that knowledge was or how much should someone have or, you know, um, is, is there's this certain, you know, continuum level of learning of knowledge that we can create. So that's what I think about is competency, I think, uh, and tying it into trust. Um, you know, having, having this, uh, really well accepted and maybe we can think about moving it over into areas of other professions, Robbie, where there's probably some really well-defined knowledge in, um, um, chemical engineering. You know, I say, you know what I'm saying? Whereas in fitness professionals, uh, it's a little looser, <laughs> just yeah. to put it mildly. <laughs> right. You know? So uh, that's, that's what I initially think about in regards to why knowledge would be important or for us to have the conversation on it. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I, two things come to mind there. One would be like, where's Newton's Principia of fitness, right? <laughs> where, where, where is the, uh, that, you know, it doesn't seem to exist. And then a second thing. Well, CCP. I, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I would say pretty darn close. Uh, but you know, second thing I, I would discuss with my philosophy students is more than any other humans in history, we are swimming in a sea of information, but that doesn't mean knowledge. Right. So yeah, we, we have access to more information than any humans in, you know, the history of existence. And yet how much of that qualifies mm-hmm. as, justified true belief as as actual knowledge. Yeah. And there's lots of troubles in there because I think uh, it's well accepted that that sea of information is, is probably what we all want to have because the opposite of not having a sea of information looks like we're reducing it and becoming authoritarian in what you see. You know, so I think I do understand the full acceptance of just spreading it, you know, and everyone having access, but I see it from the coach, coach, you know, fitness coach lens that it's very detrimental to get a idea across because there's no concepts of truths or reality inside of knowledge. Um, the common, you know, one that we consistently laugh at on this show. Now, I think it's, it's probably uh, the third time, but the whole coconut oil will kill you or eggs will kill you. Um, You know, uh, it's, it just seems to like wrap itself around in a news media cycle, depending upon, you know, you know what I'm saying? So, um, and that would be, I think maybe an ultimate goal for us, Robbie is to, towards the end of this call, move towards an area where you and I have shared some concepts that we can share with others in which they have maybe a pathway now to get everyone up to a working knowledge, right? So lead clients to the point where they go, just a second now, you know, my coach gave me these tools to think about what I know and what I don't know and how to determine what is, what is real and what are truths. So right. that we can get to this good place, you know, over time where everyone really kind of knows, 
and you just end it there. Everyone kind of just knows. <laughs> right. Uh, K-N-O-W-S, you know. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think um, a couple of things come to mind. So one, like you were saying, it, there's always trade-offs, right? If, if we were, you know, if it was just one, one central repository, we'd maybe come off as dogmatic and authoritarian. And yes. We want to let a million flowers bloom. But at the same time, like you were saying, in that context, it's very hard to know, you know, really know what, what is true and what is not. But going back to your point about what coaches can teach their clients and even themselves, this is where... Uh, and we'll probably get into this down a little bit later on, critical thinking, right? This is, you know, questioning things that you see just because a blog article said eggs are going to kill you uh, or things of that nature, you know, mm -hmm. uh, can, can you do your own research? Can you think for yourself? Can you question assumptions? So Yeah, yeah. And to your previous point about the current state of affairs, um, that's a hard thing to do. That's a hard thing to do right now. It feels like, uh, it feels like, um, I don't know how to describe it, but it feels like, you know, anything that's discussed or what's happening is like Tinder to, to, a to a very possible, you know, ex explosion of, of things. That's just my sense and feeling is like, it's, it doesn't really feel like the okay time just to breathe and think about those things. Right. You know, it is. So, uh, I also just feel I need to say that too so we can you know there I think what what I learned from that and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong but there's timing to that you know there's there's timing to it for for when you want to take some time to breathe and really critically think about those things and then there's also times where you want to you want to just feel it you know and be a part of it um, for what what feels right you know and we don't take the time to critically think about those things so that's something yeah I no, I think that's true. And I think, again, going back to everything comes with trade-offs. Critical thinking typically requires some sort of um, distance or abstraction, which can sometimes take away from that feeling in the now. And like the feeling in the now can be really great for like getting stuff done, but it can lose that critical element. Yes. But vice versa, that feeling in the now can also pull on critical reflection. So it's tough to know when to do what but i yeah i would agree that's yeah something. that's a great yeah that's a great way of explaining explaining it yeah so we talked a bit about why we care about knowledge let's talk a little bit about what knowledge is and i think a good way to get into it that might just help people get a little bit of a grasp on it before we get to the philosophical definition is what knowledge isn't so typical terms that we would use that are not knowledge or at the very least they're not enough for knowledge so opinion, uh, feeling, wants, uh, falsehoods, obviously, uh, guesses, traditions, assumptions, beliefs. Now, two things I want to clarify here. One, it's not that these things can't be useful in other contexts. Mm -hmm. They absolutely positively can be. And it's not that knowledge is good and these things are bad. Yeah. But we're just trying to delineate what is useful in what context and what is not. I mean, beliefs can be tremendously important and maybe even more important than knowledge in, in certain contexts, but just making that distinction, if that makes sense. Yeah. Cause I think about, uh, sometimes the mental exercise that I go through of making opinions and assumptions and looking at traditions and what has been that does help in like, you know, figure out what is true and what is like the truth of something. So I agree with you. There's gotta be context to that, but, um, 
And also just want to make the point too, that I hope people are listening in that this is the way I would argue you should go about, you know, working on a particular topic to try to find some interest in it is like I've talked about previously in the way I do it in nutrition to bring that up again, is that we'll just, let's talk about keto and put it right next to knowledge. Okay. So I just want people to recognize how you just did that. It's a really strong way of looking at the minuses and the unknowns of that particular thing prior to just piling on all the pluses. Right. So we talk about, you know, you got to really have all your, your house in order of your pluses and minuses and unknowns of this particular thing before you want to uh, jam on it. So I just wanted to point that out, Robbie, for people listening, that it's a way that you can just actually learn from this to sit back and say, well, what do I know about knowing? You know, well, let's just sit back and say, well, what's the minuses of knowledge, you know, or the, or the opposites of that? What, what knowledge is not, I think is an excellent way to start. So thank you for that. No problem. Yeah. And thank you for your point. I mean, couldn't agree more as someone who gets the keto question all the time. I think, you know, context matters, uh, you yeah. know, neurodegenerative disease, uh, you know, crazy insulin resistance, uh, have your ducks in a row and want to give this a try, BLGs and things like that. But uh, getting back to the point of like, knowledge has a context, keto can have a context. And that yeah. idea, it's yeah. not that keto is wrong or right. It's just that all these things have a context and we need to be clear about where it applies and where it doesn't. Yeah. 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 So with knowledge, some features, you know, that, you know, philosophers are famous for endlessly debating things back and forth. So as soon as a philosopher hears anyone that I'm about to list, they'll say, well, I'm not sure. But just to kind of get started here, the idea with knowledge is it would be more objective. It would perhaps be more timeless, um, independent of any particular observer in time and space. To go back to the gravity example, you know, gravity is 9.8 meters per second squared, whether you speak uh, Urdu or French, whether you were born 2,000 years ago, no matter what religion you are, no matter what race you are, um, you know, that's just objectively true. And something that we'll get to later is, in principle, one of the things with knowledge is like, you could then come to those same conclusions yourself, you know what I mean? Like, you don't have to rely on someone else, someone with sufficient equipment and repeating the same test could come to that exact same conclusion so there's something about this objectivity to it yeah um I, I i don't mean to uh i just want i want people to hear your last point if you can hit the the 15 minus arrow back a couple of times you know your last point on because you hear me say it all the time is like the and I'll, i'm being broad here but the 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 best program for people for autonomy and fitness and health has been written it's been written and it's been executed and, and done like millions of times over, right? It, it, it's in front of us, it's, but it's so hard to scrape all that, to scrape it and look over all of it. And, and that's, I, I believe that's my strength and my conviction of seeing those things. And now the ch it's a challenge for me is to like explain it to people about what your last point is that, if there's enough of those things, regardless of you controlling all those things, and they all get to the same answer, that, that is clearly 9.8 meters per second squared. You know, like whoever wants to do it, you know, you're like, go ahead, do it. <laughs> and that's how, that's how I see the, the fitness booklet. You know, it's like, it's, it should be so, it's so clear, but, but it's not. 
it's not. So anyways, I just, I appreciated your, uh, your last point on that, that I hope people could see, because I think that's where we're going to move this is, um, where reasons and evidence sit in this. Like, how do you get to that level of knowledge? You know? Yeah. And an intuition I just had while you were saying this, and this could be completely wrong, but it was just something I was just thinking, you know, there are very few things I'm, that I can think of in, fit, in uh, physics that strike me as like sexy or I want to believe them. Um, but I feel like in fitness, there's a ton of that that we would want to believe or that's yeah. sexy that maybe crowds out all that other stuff. So with physics, it's like, yes. I don't think anyone has a vested interest in whether it's 15 meters per second squared or six. Like yes. it's not sexy to be one or the other. Yes. But back, well, that's sexy. You know what I mean? Like yeah. there's a whole layer of stuff. There is so much, so much of, uh, yeah, that goes into, I believe, just the, the um, maybe the, the cultural and social uh, values we place upon the participation in fitness. I think that is what clouded, it's clouded a lot of it. Um, again, you know, and in airing back to my, my thoughts on, you know, moving and doing physical challenges because you can, as opposed to having that, that other reason to do it, you know. Yeah, and it, it, it kind of goes back somewhat to that Upton Sinclair quote. Um, it's hard to get someone to believe something when their salary depends on them not believing them not believing that thing. Yeah. So, so kind of that same idea where you know if you are part of you know any other forms of fitness, and it's like, well, this is the way, the light, and the truth. Well, <laughs> when you want to believe something, that clouds out a whole other whole set of objective truths that may be lying underneath. Yeah. And so where does, and you knew, I'm sure you probably, I'm not sure if you knew you did, but you probably set me up for this with your previous uh, um, recap or sorry, uh, your recap that you sent me prior to this, Robbie. But um, I, I largely think that this is why my commentary is always based upon the truth is always revealed in the training practice because in the training practice, um, what is underlying this whole participation is an observation of a, an organism's ability to adapt to a stress, to overcome it, to learn from it, and to persevere and create higher resilience, right? So inside of that, there are truths which can lead to knowing, right? So when you say, when you say, we're looking for those truths. And we're, when I say the evidence has been there for a long period of time, the evidence is inside of each person's training practice of overcoming physical challenges because there's a biological system, which whatever you believe in could be controlled by a cognitive element that says you're going to do these challenges and there's things that we just will not allow you to do, right? We can't allow you to essentially control 120 pound dumbbell, right? You just don't have the mechanical, you can believe it as much as you want, but you don't have the mechanical system to do it, right? So, so when you go through those physical challenges, my point being is that, that the iron, you know, Henry Rollins comment, the iron never lies, you know? So you either can move it or you can't. So you, let's say you do move it, there's an adaptation and there's also a stress that's imposed in that particular physical challenge. And so what I'm, what I'm tying in here, possibly Robbie, I'm looking for your, your point of where that fits into our conversation on knowledge is where does 
the actual biological constraints of us as organisms come into play for us deciding upon what our what is knowledge and what are truths and fitness because it's it's fairly clear to me and maybe i'm not describing it correctly or people don't understand it that the organism gets stressed or the human gets stressed right let's say it's called physical stresses and you either will adapt to it to like learn about it so that if it comes again you can do better at it or you're going to have a really hard time with it like you're not going to be able to and so what is inside of that what is inside of that is a clear insight into your capabilities what is also inside of that is a truth right like you 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 know you will know that if you do this certain kind of stressor you will not be able to do it or you will not be able to recover from it so what do you do you do something slightly less than that stressor so inside of that um i think maybe i just kind of got into an area too that clouds this like knowledge in terms of fitness is the actual constraints of us understanding human development and human potential and us physically uh, doing things for a long period of time i'm not sure if that uh, raises any thoughts in terms of how we can probably get to understanding some of those truths better no i, I thought there was so much there and i think it goes back to that accessibility point we were talking about with like you know any human could figure out 9.8 meters per second squared kind of a similar point i take and correct me if you uh, you know, I think I'm not characterizing it correctly, but the idea is, you know, there, there are two sides to it. So one side is the actual experience of working out where you're going to bump up against this stuff, whether you like it or not, the yeah. limits of human physical potential. And if you do 10,000 workouts or, you know, something else, you will start to stumble upon these truths. Um, and you will be able to see it for yourself to, you know, hit upon this objectivity. So there's that element to it. Um, a famous distinction with knowledge is knowledge that and uh, knowledge how, like, you know, you can know everything there is about the mechanics of swimming, but not know how to swim. Yes. Um, and I think from both of those angles, the science of biology and what, you know, muscles can actually do and anatomy and things like that, you can derive truths about what humans can do in terms of their physical capacity. But I also think this is where the element of fitness actually contributes to knowledge, just knowing what the biology book says about what a muscle can do is missing out on a whole slew of experience and knowledge that you would get from actually engaging in those activities. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyhow, that's, <laughs> thank you for listening to that. That's my brain went on, um, on what seems uh, to be somewhat clear to me is the, is that concept of what someone can express and recover from uh, leads to adaptation. And so inside of that, um, we really just have to think about, well, why are we, why are we not too clear on what someone can express? Right. Which is, well, of course, enveloped by, you know, having knowledge that the coach passes on to someone. So anyways, thanks for that opportunity for me just to, just to do a mental exercise on that. Oh, yeah. No problem. So we've talked a bit about what knowledge is not and what some features of knowledge might be. Now let's just talk about what the standard, this is the standard definition in philosophy. Um, and there are all sorts of debates about it. Again, we're not gonna go down all those rabbit holes, but just, this is a pretty darn good overall definition. So knowledge is justified, true belief. And I wanna break each, three, each, each of those components down to kind of explain to people. So first of all, 
uh, it's a belief. So knowledge is a kind of mental entity. It's not an object, it's not a person, it's not an event, it's a thing in the mind of a being that can have such things. Um, but it's not just a belief. Like if uh, a helpful way to think about this is if we were baking the cake of knowledge, like just having an egg isn't gonna help you bake a cake. Just having flour isn't gonna do the trick. We have to have multiple components. So belief is the foundation, but we need two other things. So it needs to be justified, which means that there are reasons, ideally objective reasons, um, not just any old reasons, uh, to support the belief. And the contrast case here would be true belief, uh, luck. So take a couple of examples here. Let's say you, you, know, you randomly guess someone's weight to the T. Um, that's not knowledge, that's just luck. If someone says, well, uh, I believe that there are aliens, or I know that there are aliens and they turn out to be aliens. Well, you didn't really know it. You thought it, you turned out to be right, and there's a 50-50 chance either there are or there aren't. Mm -hmm. It's not really knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, and then the last component for knowledge is it has to be true. It can't just be a justified belief. There have been lots of justified beliefs in human history. People thought phlogiston was the thing that made fire go before we knew about oxygen and combustion. So it, being true, which we'll probably talk about in a separate podcast, Again, it's got its whole can of worms we could go into, but the simplest way to explain it is your belief corresponds with the way the world is. I, you know, if I say I know that the sky is blue, that's because the sky, you know, we get into, you know, how we see and things like that. But you know what I mean? It, 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 the 9.8 meters per second squared would be a better example, but the idea is it corresponds with the way the world really is. So the contrast case here would be something like the earth is the center of the universe. Mm -hmm. Perfectly justified mm -hmm. for a whole, you know, series of sensory experiences that we had just turned out not to be true. Yeah. Um, so I'll pause there. Any, any thoughts on that or? Uh, no, um, I just like the, um, but I, a uh, couple things. I appreciate your hesitancy in what I only have like skimmed a little bit of the uh, knowledge inside of the arguments around the definition of knowledge. So I appreciate you sticking your neck out and being like, today, this is the one we're going to work with. So I just wanted to mention that point. Um, also, and why that's just important for this whole conversation, again, on any topic, right? So like previously, we defined fitness, right? But was it, was it the best one? We don't know, but we're at least taking a stab at the definition of that, just so we can wrap our hands around it uh, for it. So I appreciate that. Um, but I just wanted to uh, lastly, just mentioned you get gave another example of um, it's not that the sun rotates around us. And I think this was back to your point of the uh, the Earth being the center of the universe. Correct me if I'm wrong, right? But um, the reason why I think that story is interesting is that you know it offers this idea, this slight little sliver of idea that um, which maybe upgrades this definition of knowledge, Robbie is that there could be time that passes that does change our beliefs. Oh yeah. So at one, cause at one point in time, every person that walked this planet thought that the sun rotated around us, you know what I'm saying? So, um, just, I just wanted to just make people think a little bit about that. And that's why I really do like your, uh, the definition because 
those they have to have some real objective reasons inside there um and um it's not by luck or chance that's that's a really you know that's a really uh um clear one that we can stick with before we get into studying it or looking at uh, the concepts around knowledge thanks yeah and this has practical effects like when you discuss the topic of political philosophy which i'm sure we'll get into at some point um you know, take an example of someone who wants to make a law that says that children should wear seatbelts. You know, you can't just say, well, I think they should, or, mm -hmm. you know, this random person told me they should. It has to be based on whether well, there's objective, verifiable, you know, repeatable evidence that they will come to harm if they don't. So this is, you know, it's, it's not just, this knowledge doesn't, uh, or this uh, definition doesn't just stand in a vacuum. It can be useful insofar as it can provide bits of evidence that everyone has access to that aren't just isolated to, well, you know, this is my tradition or my belief or my opinion or other things like that. Yeah. 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 Justified true belief. I like it. Another way to think about it, if it's helpful for people, uh, is as cognitive success versus cognitive failure. So one of the things we try to distinguish knowledge from is, is feeling. Now, there's nothing wrong with feeling, and you, you know, you sometimes hear things like, well, uh, my feelings aren't wrong, right? Um, th things to that effect. And that very well may be true, uh, that your feelings aren't wrong, but something that can't be wrong can't be right either. Do you know what I mean? Like, yep. it's just a different class of thing that can be useful, informative in a certain arena, but it's not, um, it doesn't have a relation to success or failure the same way knowledge can. Part of what made Einstein's predictions so amazing is that they keep repeatedly getting tested um, and not all of them, but a lot of them come back, you know, 50 or hundred years later as true, even though they've gone through the gauntlet of, you know, trying to falsify them essentially. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I thought one other interesting connection that I didn't know if you wanted to say something about, you know, you do these, great talks, the knowledge series, you know, and I, mm. I assume there's a reason for the name, you know, it's not the opinion series. It's not the feeling series. Yeah. Thoughts on that. Yeah. I think it's, a, uh, um, it's, there probably wasn't a, a well thought out, uh, plan that went into it, you know, for the naming to be completely honest. Um, but it's interesting that, uh, up until you just mentioned it, I never really thought of that, but as soon as you said it, um, it, uh, I don't know if we can use that as a catapult to the future aspect of why knowledge fits inside of fitness, but um, I saw it as a, as a missing piece of conversation in fitness, right? So what I see is fitness and philosophy here. This is a, this is a more grander vision of what I had, right? A, play, a place to have conversation on particular topics in fitness and thought and, you know, where cognition and and thinking and critical thinking comes into the whole big picture. Um, because I think that's, that's a really missed, missed, you know, opportunity, I believe. Um, so the knowledge series was for that, um, languaging it such that, um, we move closer to knowing what we know and also knowing what we don't know. Um, and if you've listened to my knowledge series, I also, claim things in there that we do know um not <laughs> always intentionally <laughs> to not seemingly looks like look like we know but to make people just you know just you know get a little like jolt 
uh, to see if we really do know it, you know? So um, that was the intention of it and, um, and nothing, nothing more. Right. You know, but I, I, I think that's useful and important because I, you know, just like we were talking about before, how many fitness professionals that you've ever seen or, you know, blogs or Instagram accounts, do people talk about like the concept of knowledge? Do you know what I mean? It's usually what is sexy or what leads to performance. And maybe that has some connection to knowledge, like mm-hmm. you said before, disease, you know, and maybe, and maybe knowledge is being implicitly referenced in there, but I think it's just, it, it's interesting to me that, you know, in, in naming it that and us having this discussion, just talking about, especially in what we're discussing, fitness, how important this concept is of whether you know something or just being willing to admit, I, I don't know that, or that's an opinion or feeling uh, or a thought and just making that distinction. Yeah. Do you feel also, Robbie, that, uh, or would you agree with the statement that I think the biggest hurdle for coaches to get towards at least some concept of, of knowledge is is experience? I think that's a big one. I do. I mean, I think, um, because you meant, you mentioned, you know, you can't, you, you know, you can, you can know in your mind how to make an Olympic swimmer by reading books on swimming. Right. Um, but you know, it, it takes some, it takes real knowledge, um, through that experience to get to the point where you can successfully apply that over and over. Right. So that someone could be like, who do you go to who knows what it's like to make an Olympic swimmer? You go to someone who has repeated it just like 9.8 meters per second squared, you know? Yeah, no, I think both as like the coach, as, um, someone who participates in fitness and maybe they've just been in the bubble of running or the bubble of bodybuilding or the bubble of CrossFit or what have you, they don't have that range of experience, which would then give them more knowledge about different ways of going about things. But also um, the coach as someone who teaches someone else, that in itself is a set of experiences. And if you just teach, you know, athletes, or if you just teach, you know what I mean? Like having that range and, and going to someone who has taught swimmers, um, I, I do think that that's a huge component of um, getting better knowledge and fitness. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So could we say that, uh, um, you know, this, this is my belief. And so just so people don't know, it's not, I, I, you know, I know that I'm biased to this, but it's the person's, and that's why we call it experience on the front end of CCP. Like coaches have to go through the movement experience, right? And be assessed and, and do their own stuff. And what I'd love you know, is for people to show up to CCP and have, you know, years of thousands of opportunities to experience fitness. To your point, they're doing it themselves, right? You know, so would you, would you say, are you saying the same thing just in different words of way I'm trying to clarify that is that it takes that personal experience first before they get to also experiencing it with other people uh, that leads to this like level of knowledge that's that's um, not only convenient but uh, but great for the current time. Yeah, no, I would totally agree with that. And as you were saying that, I thought of a contrast case that may be useful in physics. There's a distinction between theoretical physicists and you know those who do the experiments. And mm-hmm. the theoretical ones just kind of take what the experimental guys do and they do some stuff with it and come up with these grand theories. Uh, and maybe there's some overlap between the two, but there's more of a distinction. But I, I wonder if in the very nature of fitness, you, you can't just be the theoretical person. You know what I mean? Like there has to be that um, 
there's something about fitness where there has to, in addition to the theoretical side, be at least at some point, um, you know, that heavy dose of experience. I, I personally think. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not I'm not to mar that down, but uh, um, that may be that may be answering my question. Of uh, I'm not sure if you're agreeing with that, but it does take a significant amount of experience to get to a higher order of knowledge within fitness. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with that. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So the last thing I wanted to mention before we get to the actual main discussion is just um, in philosophy, there's a branch called epistemology. This is the study of knowledge. And if you break it down into its you know, component terms, like we did with autonomy, episteme uh, would be knowledge, logos is an account of. So we're trying to give it an account of knowledge. And this branch of philosophy asks questions like, what is knowledge? What is it characterized by? That's what we just tried to get at. And then these next questions uh, are ones that I think are going to be really relevant for our discussion today. Ep epistemology asks questions like, what do we know? How do we know it? What are the sources of justification for what we know? And how do different types of knowledge differ, like moral knowledge, scientific knowledge, things like that? So we can essentially ask those last four same questions with regard to fitness. We're going to take justified true belief as just the definition of, of knowledge for today. And then we can ask, well, um, how do we know what we know in fitness? What are the sources of what we know? Um, how do we justify that? And, um, you know, how does knowledge in fitness differ from other types of knowledge? Yeah, my, I took that down as uh, notes when you were explaining that uh, for the study of it. Um, and I'll, I'll refer again back to the words I used earlier here that we... We know what we know in fitness based upon what I said was two things, um, experience and the biological systems of adaptation. Um, so because fitness in, or I, you know, I'm not uh, saying this is the only area in which what fitness does apply. We may need to go back to our definition of fitness, Robbie, and you can hold me to that to ensure we're in the right direction. But, um, there's so much inside of the stress and adaptation of a person and physical stress and adaptation of a person and how someone reacts to that stress and how they overcome it and adapt with the, with what I'm just calling biological principles of like when you're five years of age versus 16 versus 39 versus 89 all of those things cover and you know roll over it to make it individualized to come up with how we know what we know in fitness um, as the base support. You combine that with experience, meaning you know in that area where someone is doing some stress and overcoming and doing it over and over, that's called learning, right? They're learning how to become more resilient. They're learning how to adapt to another stressor that is either willfully, you know, discovered or uh, willfully organized. Um, and it's the combination of those two things, the experience that someone either has done or is doing, um, and the actual, you know, topic of max physical potential or what we call potential of a human with biological constraints. That's how we know what we know in fitness, in my, in my opinion. 
Um, and I don't even know if it's in my opinion, but I'll, I'll, uh, you know, ask what you think about that. No, I, I agree with that. I think it would be one thing that might be useful is, um, to maybe dig down a deep, a bit deeper into like the nitty gritty of how that works. So for example, in mm -hmm. philosophy, one of the things we talk about is, um, you know, me seeing something just by itself is insufficient for knowledge. Like someone just lifting a dumbbell by itself, um, you know, the experience of that the tactile feel, the, you know, the muscular feel, the fact that they're seeing it, that's a component piece of it. But I think to get back to the point you were making earlier, is there some aspect of introspection going on mm -hmm. or some reasoning or some, some memory? Like, so in your mind, what... I feel like to come to those truths, um, there's the actual literal sensory experience of the activity, but then it has to be combined with uh, some sort of critical thinking, would you say, or reason or something like, oh, I just did this thing and it felt this way. Yeah. Hmm, I'm yeah. reflecting on this and then now I'm going to draw this conclusion. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, yeah, I, uh, I do think that's probably a, an upgrade to to what is part of, I guess what I'm calling their experience is that inside of that, I made, I'm making an assumption that when someone, um, any human deals with those physical challenges, there's, there's probably even autonomic systems at play in regards to how they deal with those stressors. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm pondering on that because I'm not even sure if, someone's senses have to be heightened in order to figure out that they can't move an object. You know, I, I just, I'm just trying to think of, let's take the bicep curl and let's make it like, you know, post Cambrian period and be like, you get to move that big thing out of the way. Cause you want to investigate what's in the cave, you know, so that you can eat. Right. Um, and you're like, I can't move that. What, what, is, you know? And so to your point are people like, Ooh, you know, what's that? feeling <laughs> that I have going on in my arms. Right. Why, why can't, I mean, I see this rock. I know I need to get that food back to your point. Um, where I'm afraid to touch on that is, I guess, um, this whole notion, like we discussed previously of really incorrect intentions inside of fitness, um, that people are, are not connecting to, being open to this idea of like, Oh, I can't lift that. Now what's the reason for that? Or, you know, why am I even trying to participate in that movement challenge? So I guess that's where I'm getting kind of lost it as I'm, I'm assuming that folks are just going to have incorrect intentions of trying to figure out why they're moving that. So I, that's why I go back to like a uh, point in time where there was no such thing as fitness or bicep curls. Um, and then I say, well, what's inside of us that allows someone to deal with the fact that they can't, move that rock, you know, and it's like, oh, that's interesting. And then they try it, you know, an, on another day and they're like, Ooh, I think I budgeted this time. And that's the, that's the learning. That's the point. Oh, I've, I've some, something happened in that previous experience that connected me to recognizing that it's that repetitive action of pushing up against my own limitations that allows me to learn and overcome this perceived stressor. And the stressor is the rock that needs to be moved to get the food that's in the cave, right? So what's the intentions? Well, the intentions are I need to survive, right? So I need to eat, right? Or maybe I want to have that cave as well because it looks really nice, I think, on the inside. 
face pummy stick and fire in there. Actually, I'm not even sure if fire is around at the time. It's besides the point. Um, but you get my point. I've learned about, you know, it's like, and then, and then a week later I come back. It's like, you're like, Oh, there's that fucking rock again. And you do it. And it like, it shifts this time. Right. And why, why is that the case? Well, I would assume you've now are connected all these data points five times of like, Oh, I shifted that rock. I overcome, I learned about it. And this is, this is what I'm saying, Robbie, with that experience is that, um, and I guess this is what it may come down to. Does a coach need to have that knowledge or can a human just come up with this where they just experience physical challenges and then they go, Oh, interesting. You know, I can't do that five times. Why is that the case? You know? Um, and is that where you were asking of like, should that be a, should that be like a, a formatted way that people experience fitness as opposed to just like self-discovery of these things? No, not necessarily a formatted way. No, I think, I think what you were saying was exactly what I was trying to get at. I was trying to say that, and this is where I think on the first episode we were talking about how sometimes if, uh, you know, experiences, a, a word can have different meanings, right? So like experience can mean, you know, reason and memory and introspection and perception mm -hmm. in it, but it can also mean sensory experience. So what I was trying to get at, um, and I think you clarified is with that first experience of trying to move the rock, you know, there's really just that sensory perception there. Like I can't move the rock. The next time there's the memory, <laughs> it's the same, same. So it's not, it's remembered perception. It's, it's a different type of thing. It's, it's related, but it's a different mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. And then you said on the third instance, it's, you know, memory plus a little bit of reasoning. Oh, I did this new thing. You know, I, I put my hip into it or wh whatever. I mean, obviously, they don't have the concept of hip or yeah. yeah. You, you get my point. They yeah. shifted in a certain way. The idea that um, there are these different elements that go into how we um, acquire it. And the sensory bit is hugely important, but it by itself isn't the, um, the only component, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And I, uh, yeah, I just, uh, and I know how challenging it is. Uh, for any coach listening to to not see where that that plays a role, but I really do think that you know this should be a, a catapult in critical thinking for the coach to be like well how do we how do we set up the environment such that people can you know learn about those examples and not get hurt but learn about those examples where you know they can gain knowledge by experiencing. You know, and I think that's, I think that's maybe what I took from your questioning is, you know, I, yes, I would answer it wholeheartedly. Yes, there has to be some sensory experience inside there because we want people connecting to their limitations. So to understanding that repetitive environment of coming up against a physical stress and going, I can't do that. Right. But my attempt, right. My attempt without going past my capabilities is what the learning is. You know, it's the repeating of that. You know, so, you know, going for a hike for 45 minutes, and we're watching this show on, on Prime because I listened to a podcast with Joe Rogan on this guy who won this event called Alone. And uh, they're just dropped off in the woods. And anyways, um, this guy who's one of the competitors, he was a former uh, U.S. Army or Air Force. I apologize for that. But he talked about, hiking and learning how to hike. He's like the beauty of hiking is just, you just go walking and you figure out your limitations over time. And I just love that. There's so much beauty in that. Right. So 
as an example, back to my point of experience leading to remember, remembering, which is like, oh, I can't do that. It's like when you go hiking for 60 minutes, um, you may hike for 65 minutes and all of a sudden your heel starts to develop a, a spur or like a little, you know, thing now, right? And now you're like, I can't hike for 66 minutes, right? But that's a learning. So what happens the next time? Well, maybe you hike for 85 minutes. So you see that there, like that, that's experience as well. It's the same example of, you know, pushing up against the rock. But my whole point is that how do you gain knowledge? How does a person gain knowledge, right? Of this, what I believe is this free opportunity to learn about what our limitations are in physical potential and physical expression is to actually experience it. You have to, you have to walk for 65 minutes to know, oh, wow, you know, my boots are not capable of supporting my feet and creep happens, right? And I get wear and tear. So then now all of a sudden you're like, well, now I can walk for 80 minutes because I changed my shoes and I took four days to recover the heel thing and et cetera. Now I can watch for, walk for 120 minutes. So what is happening inside of that? And I apologize, Robbie, I'll stop after this. What's happening inside of that, my belief is there's knowledge being gained in that experience. You see that knowledge of what is the stressor? 66 minutes was the first stressor. It's like, you can't, you don't have the capability, you know, to go beyond that. And then now there's this knowledge gained in what I'm calling principles of, of, you know, what people can do in fitness. And that's how we, I think that's the base support, I believe, in how we should uh, figure out. And what, where a coach sits into that, you're basically just guiding someone, you know, safely to experience those things. So they go, oh interesting i can't do 66 minutes and you're like isn't that fascinating you know and what that's doing is that it's creating an increase in knowledge for the person it's becoming self-evident so that's why i um i spoke about a certain level of experience it needs to be inside of it um and there are constraints individually um, of biological systems that will allow people to, to learn about those things. You know, up to 18 years of age, you may not have the faculties to under, get to the point of reason, right? Like the hip thing with the third rock try, <laughs> you know? You may not even have that. Um, at 25, you might now. Now you're like, okay, this is exactly it. So. Um, how do we know what we know in fitness? I think it comes down to the principles of stress and adaptation. And I think, I mean, I think it's an excellent point. And I think it goes back to one of the questions we were mentioning earlier about how do different types of knowledge differ? You know, you don't learn about logic and math via experience. Now, of course, you're taught at it, and that's a form of experience. But you know what I mean? Like, you could be a master of math or a master of logic or even a master of theoretical physics without too much in the way of experience, running experiments or doing certain things, but qualitatively uh, with fitness, I take it what you're saying is that, you know, uh, the way you characterize it is as the base support and there's some type of unique knowledge that comes from the experience of bumping up against these, these things that you can't do, some self-knowledge that comes that you just cannot obtain from a book. And while a book is you know, important and we have them in fitness, uh, 
I guess to take a contrast case with theoretical physics, like if you think back to your AP physics course or your physics course, like you read about this principle and then you do the little experiment and you're like, oh, it's interesting. It matches the book. Cool. But it seems to me what you're saying is fitness isn't quite like that. It's like the opposite way around. We, we get all the book stuff. I mean, we still get all the book stuff in theoretical physics that way, but there's, there's something more qualitative and experiential self-knowledge wise than there is in something like physics um, as a base support, if I'm saying that somewhat correctly. Yes. And I think it's because the way you said it, I think it's because Robbie, to answer the question you didn't, you didn't ask um, it's, it's humans. It's the human, it's the human complexity. I think that messes that up. Like we're, we're so varied in, um, you know, cognitive function, physical capabilities, you know, just you know, everything that we have to work with. They were just to put it into mind versus body, mind and body. And that's just our two things. Um, we're just so diverse and, and just mechanically, I mean, by itself in what we know, just in the physical world is just so complex. So I think it's the human aspect that, that makes it to to your point a little different inside of the fitness experience, right? Um, not even I didn't even want to bring in the intentions of fitness, you know, because that again clouds it even more. Um, but yeah, it just makes it really. And I don't I don't want that to come off as being oh that 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 is hence why fitness is complex and therefore it can't be taught. It's like no, no, it just makes it it makes it I guess uh, you just have to be. Uh, you know, as the coach looking at it, um, you have to recognize that it's intricate and it's delicate, but it's still a progressive, simple matter um, of stress and adaptation. It's just that humans diversify it, you know, because we're just so complex. I think that's why it, the qualitative aspect is far more important inside of fitness. I think that's right. And just thinking of another contrast case, as you were saying that, like, when you do the experiment in physics class, it's not what am I feeling inside as I'm viewing this? Like you're seeing that thing outside of yourself with the fitness experience. I take it part, a huge part of what you're talking about is what am I feeling inside me as I am doing this? Yes. What locations am I bumping up against mentally, physically, yes. emotionally? Yes. Um, and the diversity of humans obviously yeah, impacts that. Yeah. And then you can imagine everyone who scored differently on that, you know, like, how well they are at doing all those things in awareness and feedback and motor control and all that. Um, it just makes it quite challenging, but it's still, but still the base is that they have to, it has to over time become self-evident like through the practice safely. <laughs> I don't know why I'm intertwining that word, but it has to be safely done so that they don't get, you know, so they, they do quote unquote, learn how to trip up and fail safely um, and to risk it and then to learn about it and then to come back and try to do it again. And that is in, is in, in essence, you know, what is inside of fitness progression um, right. is all that, that experience of that. And inside of that experience is how the client gains knowledge as to what is true right? I cannot lift 500 pounds, right? They, they, they realize over time that is a truth, right? But now we're, we're digging into that, 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 that statement, right? It's like, well, how do you know that to be true? You know what their answer is? I've done this for 15 years, four times a week. You see that? 
And so there's so much depth inside of that simple answer, right? There's so much depth inside of that. Um, yeah, experience and what that looks like is really going to lead to how we know what we know inside of that. So are we saying there, Robbie, because um, I'm still thinking about your point, which is a really good one on, you know, reading a book on swimming and teaching how to swim versus, you know, how many reps are necessary to get knowledgeable or how we know what we know in fitness. Um, are we, are we uh, coming to an agreement or a point of consideration on that in fitness around experience and the depth of it or the amount? I mean, I don't know that we've come to an agreement on the amount, but I think we've definitely, if we didn't already agree, we certainly agree now, or at least I think we do, um, that there's some, there's some elements of qualitative experience that cannot be reduced to the, you know, book element or the information element The you know, the famous examples in philosophy that I think initially when we connected on this, you know, uh, Nagel, what is it like to be a bat or, you know, Mary and the um, color room experiment, you know, Mary can know, Mary can read this. So there's a famous experiment in philosophy thought experiment where Mary reads, she's, she's the foremost color scientist in the world, except that she lives in a black and white universe. Um, so she has zero experience, zero sensory experience of what it is like to see colors, but she knows everything about rods and cones and, you know, light hitting certain things and wavelengths. I think all of us would say intuitively, and this is the point of the experiment, that you know Mary has a good book knowledge of colors, but has zero, zero knowledge of the sense of experience. And with fitness, um, you can say a very similar thing, um, but even perhaps more emphatically, just because I take it as you were saying that the experiential part is just so crucial um, to what we're talking about in fitness. It's, it's not just a piece or one other piece it's like foundational to the whole thing yeah um and what that makes me think about is you know personally what i'm still going through you know in my practices of physical fitness is that i'm learning about currently you know what it's like um as a 46 year old male um with two kids in Coeur in the summer after 10,000 sessions since i was 18 um you know i'm still learning you know, there's, there's still experiences in my physical practice in which I, you know, I can't, it's creating, you know, deep color to the book. And I, I could not have possibly read about that when I was 22 and know it. Right. So it, 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 it kind of, maybe you can help me there, uh, heal me because I'm having then a struggle with, um, you know, when does it come to the point of what is enough knowledge through experience that allows someone to teach fitness? Because what, what I was just considering up until this point in time was the client's experience, right? And I think this may be a, a point for us to talk about the coach knowledge versus the client's knowledge. Right. And this is where I'm a little, I'm a little, uh, you know, because I was just thinking myself as a client, right? Myself as a, as a person experiencing fitness, right. um, I'm still learning things, right? That's helping me, you know, uh, do the best story of fitness for me, 
when I'm 50 and 65 and 70, right? So I'm still learning about that. But to my point, I can't, when I was 22, I could read a book on child rearing and relationships, you know, but now after 15 years of marriage and two children and me working out for the 10,000th time, there's something rich about that. So I'm not sure if you could alleviate my pain on, you know, the, the eye-opening thing that I just came to is that, you know, of answering the question, well, how much knowledge does a person have to know before they can, you know, spread it to others if we believe there is a significant amount of personal experience needed in order to do that? I'm not sure I can alleviate your pain here. The answer is I don't know. I would go, I would go back to something like, you know, I mean, famous experiments in philosophy, the ship of Theseus, or at what point after plucking out how many hairs are you bald? I don't know that there's a set point, but I, but thinking about our last conversation about uh, virtue, I think it could be something similar with like the virtuous person where there isn't like that one point where like the person becomes truly and completely virtuous. It's a lifelong practice and some, it's a continuum. Mm. And I think just the same way that you right now have way more knowledge than at 22, you, you know, 40 years from now, we'll have way more knowledge uh, than now. Now, but you do bring up an interesting question about, we don't, we don't, of course, just want to say the person who has slightly more knowledge than someone else is there in a position to coach someone else that, that yeah. I think we, we would agree to. So it can't just be like, oh, I'm just slightly in front of you. Uh, so I can coach you. It needs to be something more, but I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what that exact demarcation is, but I would at least start the conversation by saying it's very much a continuum, not a, not a point in. Yeah, because, I mean, just think about this. You know, the, we, we want the fitness coach to deal with everyone on the continuum, right? And we want the meaning from, like, age four to 92, right? Because we all think we got things to share with those individuals or principals. Um, yet we're afraid to say, really, that it takes a certain chronological and biological age before you can like expose, you know, give out that information because of enough experiences gained so that you can teach others. Um, so that's just what I'm trying to wrestle with there is, I know, I know I, I even hate when people ask me those, try to get those absolute answers, but um, like, it's very hard for someone at 23 who hasn't lived to do life coaching to someone who's 52. Right. You know I mean, so where is the, where is the knowledge coming from for the 23 year old? Cause they have all the competency from the books, you know? So I'm just trying to think of that, that definition of what, what is the definition of success in, in that, um, as to how much, like, is that really knowledge as to what that 23 year old knows, right. As to what's expected. And this, of course, is the big challenge inside of fitness because so many people can do it and so many people can teach it. But now we enter the, into this conversation around how much knowledge should the coach have and what should that knowledge entail? Um, I'm having a hard time, you know, you know uh, not coming up with an absolute living and physical experience score. You know, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want it to be like, uh, oh, you're 23? Oh, well, you should only coach a uh, 22-year-old or younger because that's the life you've experienced. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, um, no, that's exactly what you're saying. Okay. I mean, this probably, I mean, this is probably a so-so hand-wavy example, but I think one, one way we could maybe get a little bit of purchase on this is, one thing I was thinking of as you were mentioning that is 
do I personally think that a, you know, let's say a 26 year old person who just got their MSW or their LCSW, a social worker, could help someone who is 52? I do. Uh, but maybe it's in a different way. I think you're absolutely right that, you know, there's this experiential component that the 26 year old person just completely lacks compared to the person who's had kids and has been married. But by the same token, the 26 year old person does have some book knowledge and relative concepts and techniques that maybe the 52 year old person does not have access to through their experience that can help them get a better sense of their experience. So that's, that maybe gets us into another question of like, what's the interplay between the experiential component and the book knowledge component? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think what I thought about in there that could uh, help my thinking on it um, is what I call the technician, you know, aspect of coaching a technician before craftsperson before master in that loose idea, ideal order is that in the technician aspect, you are, you know, younger, you know, most times, absolutely. Um, I should say in, in chronological age, you're generally younger um, in most cases. And we forget to remember that those to be strict in just the, the ages, that 23 year old could be working with, you know, 26 other humans above 50 years of age. So we forget that it's that coach and client connection that could actually raise knowledge, right? Raise knowledge for the 26 year old coach because they get to what I was just thinking when I was back in Calgary and, you know, and I was late twenties and into my early thirties, I work with everyone. Right. And what I always say is that I learned so much about living through my experience in coaching those other people. Right. I didn't, I didn't experience what it was like to be a 55 year old because I couldn't, although it would have been cool um, to go back and forth. Um, but from listening to their stories, I gained knowledge because of my experience in coaching, if that makes sense, Robbie. So I think there's, there's this not only a personal experience that a young coach needs just for this conversation of recognizing like how much, what is knowledge and what do you actually need to do to be able to have enough knowledge to help someone? It's actually listening really well um, and listening to that entire, you know, audience that has had experience and that's how you're gaining experience to come up with some answers to what is true and what is, you know, what your knowledge level is. So let's put it into two simple buckets, a 26 year old who has one client versus a 26 year old who has 80 clients, right? Of varying degrees of living and experience in what they look like and how they live and how they have lived. I would say that the knowledge absolutely is significantly higher in magnitude of the 26 year old with the 80 clients. Oh yeah, 100%, um, 100% agree. And it, you know, qualitatively that knowledge they get from actually engaging in fitness activities is a very different type of knowledge than the knowledge of sitting down and listening to the person and gaining the experience of interacting and programming with them. So yeah. both, both very important, but, very different types of, of knowledge. Yeah. And I, uh, yeah, I thought about, you know, cause I was just thinking about too being a mentor to some young coaches, um, and thinking, 
you know, some, some coaches ask me, you know, should I go to this course? Cause I want to know more about this. Um, and I would say you're at the point in your career where I, where I think it's important for you to go, you won't learn anything, but it'll validate what you know to be true. So that's, a, that's, you could see that's, uh, that's inside of that story that may be, you know, may be helpful to some people who are now past that point in time where they're even questioning what their knowledge are, is. And, you know, is, will there come a point where they, they know what they know and they know what they don't know? Yes, there is a point and you'll get to that through experience also. And then as you do that over and over, back to our initial example, you'll, you know, it'll come to this conclusion of 9.8 meters per second square. It's all the, all the principles will unfold there. Right. And I think that brings us to a question that I wanted to ask you and kind of see what your thoughts were. So we've been talking a lot about how we like acquire these beliefs from fitness in the first place. So in philosophy, there's distinction between the acquisition of knowledge and the justification of knowledge. So I was wondering if you had any thoughts in fitness, you know, people talk about a lot about randomized control trials. Well, those only existed for, you know, uh, the past hundred years or so, uh, textbooks, coaching practice, like going to a seminar, like you were saying, and having your beliefs, uh, validated perhaps where, where does the, in your mind, where does the justification for what we believe come from? Is it just experience? Is it, where, where, what are the sources of justification? Where do we acquire justification for what we believe in fitness? Yeah, I think, uh, not to sidewind it, but it's tough for me to come up with my, my general answer, answer to that is that um, we, we just really haven't defined what a, what a journey is in fitness, I think, yet. Um, and that's why I have a hard time in saying on what, how we justify what is inside of the fitness experience. Um, so if we, and, you know, I'll be brunt on it and then you can say, well, that's not, that's not, I don't agree with your answer on it, but I, uh, so if, if we had this defined aspect of fitness as a journey, like we talked about last time and these physical experiences such that we can gain autonomy and navigate really well, um, then I would, if we use that as a base support of what we define as that optimal fitness journey, then it's the, it's the, you know, continued experience in that, that leads us to say what what it should be, you know, and I, and I, and that's why Robbie, I, I always have a really tough time with, especially, you know, looking to evidence to support what is the right pathway for fitness experience, because in, in my opinion, you know, um, and it's just for brevity's case, I think it's archaic because what's inside of what we're looking for inside of those randomized control trials or evidence inside of fitness experience generally goes off with the, with the wrong intentions. Their proxy is what is going to improve performance or not kill people. Right. And, and so what can you learn from that? Right. What you're going to learn is just how to, how to make people overcome their capabilities sooner than what they should, or it's going to pull them out of a really shitty lifestyle to get them back to zero. But that's not, that's not what we should use as a base support that justifies our actions in fitness experience, right? So, so what do I look to? Um, I, again, I go back to just being in the trenches for a couple of decades going, 
you know, time has to be inside of this. Meaning, you know, if you're doing something for a couple of years and you can't maintain it, that's probably whatever just happened there. That's an N equals one of what you shouldn't do in fitness. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because why? Because I'm defining fitness as you being able to do it forever. Right? So if, if you can do it forever, then that's the answer. That's the answer to it. But what limits us on that, Robbie, is <laughs> there hasn't been enough time dedicated to the practice. Yet, back to my original point, when I scrape all of the experiences and like speak to people who are 75 and say like, well, what did you do as your physical expression? You know, all the principles just, just get pulled out. They all did things that allowed them to gain enough resilience to just keep moving forward, but that didn't pull them away from reaching their maximal physical potential. So that's what, that's where I go with the, you know, what, what justifies the, this, uh, you know, what justifies what we should be doing in, in fitness. No, I think that's super interesting. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's so interesting to philosophically discuss something like fitness or another area of, you know, endeavor because you get to kind of the nature of it. So, you know, I take it what you're, what you're saying here is that unlike maybe some other areas of investigation, um, fitness isn't necessarily a set of propositional beliefs to be justified, you know, by such and such, you know, this randomized controlled trial, but rather it's an experiential journey and there, there's no way of gaining that propositional knowledge outside of the experiential journey, essentially. Yep. Yeah. So, I'm just, I'm talking about a million different opportunities. Yeah. And they're all, they're all different in absolute levels, million different humans with million different opportunities of million different absolute levels. Right. So how do you, how do you put that into a study? This it's like, it's impossible, especially if your intention of the study is to go, well, what makes these people unbelievable humans or what, what can we learn from these people that won't kill them with this disease? It's like, that's the, instead, why don't you just ask, what are these people doing as day-to-day -day practice that leads them to this virtuous idea of fitness forever? Um, and I'm saying that the limitation is that is, is time, um, along with, of course, our incorrect intentions as to why we're participating in physical challenges. So I think that, uh, and it, this is, you know, this is ironic, but it's a lead and it may not be out in our episode, but my next knowledge series that I'm going to do is to talk about just those two areas of evidence versus experience and where fitness fits into that and et cetera. But uh, um, yeah, I'm recapping on that, that I think there's, I think there's so much to um, what has already been done. That's apparent um, and obvious as well as our incorrect intentions on what we should be doing in fitness, as well as we really need to change up the, the model of evidence and start asking more questions of, you know, uh, what have people done that, that made them extraordinary uh, physical potential individuals, you know, forever. Why don't we ask that question? You know, um, and I would hypothesize that what's going to be inside of the answer for that in an evidence randomized controlled trials over 40 years, let's say, is that it's not going to be that sexy. 
You know, it's going to be walking and BLGs and doing a little, you know, a few push-ups every now and then. That's what I think we're afraid that that's exactly what's going to be the answer to, to what that fitness experience is going to be like. Um, that's what I would say. Can't make a bro supplement based on that. <laughs> no. no, or it's, you know, you can't sell that to a young, um, you know, soccer team and what they're going to do to overcome their local club. You know, it's not, you know, the, the intentions are not even in there. Because what we're asking is like, well, what are you going to do for physical experience forever that's going to allow you to, you know, be upright at 85 and just like kicking it, like being really mentally acute and physically capable? You know what the answer is? It's not that, it's not that challenging. Not that challenging. So what would be, I mean, I guess along with that, you know, obviously we can't, we won't be able to catalog maybe even an entire podcast episode, what we know about fitness, but Maybe let's just talk about what, what do you consider to be a few examples of things that we, that we do know in fitness as a result of this experiential journey, ones that you've taken, uh, ones that you've seen through your clients. What are some foundational pieces that we know, we have justified true belief that this is a better way to go about fitness? Yeah. Um, I generally go to, uh, uh, you know, limitations in fatigue. Um, that's where I go to figure out like what, what I think we know is we, we, again, we gain experience on what we know to answer your question on all the, all the experiments we've tried on pushing people up against their physical capabilities, not only in general health, but in sport. And I think in sport, as we've always said, there's positives and negatives to that. The positives of pushing people beyond their capabilities we get to understand this whole concept of as to what stops people from, from doing things. And so that has gleamed a whole bunch of, you know, information for me. One of those being uh, we do know that when you try to push beyond your capabilities too often for too long, um, you end up not being able to do just being reductionist in it much at all. So there is, there's a, you know, it, you know, the, 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 you know, the long held belief, which is still prominent today that, you know, you just got to go out there and you got to, you got to do it every day. You know, uh, we know that that's not true anymore. Um, in terms of it, because you know, you're, you're, so I guess inside of there, what we know is that, um, over time beating your head up against the wall, it leads to a futile, uh, ending, you know, that's what we know. Um, we do know that, um, if you repeat, uh, a movement over and over, um, and there's some moderate levels of challenge to that, you will improve efficiency of that movement over time because you learn how to navigate past that physical challenge at the right kind of intensity that gives you enough working knowledge to get excited to try to overcome that challenge the next time. We do know that. Um, we do know that after a lot of experience with physical fitness and physical challenges, most people will come up against not having the faculties to continue to improve on absolute measures. We do know that, you know, the, the, the story of, you know, uh, that I tell people in CCP, I still giggle at it, but all these young whippersnappers, when I just say, you know, at one point in time, you're going to get weaker and shorter, you know, they're like, 
just a second now. <laughs> they can't they can't connect to that, but that is that's that's what we know. We do know there's some constraints, right? Past 35, 40, 45, whatever. And as you know, the story of experience and et cetera, what leads into that. Um, so that's that I'll, I'll give just those three. That's what we know thus far uh, with experiences. Yeah. And I think those are good examples. And I think going back to what you were saying earlier, I mean, there is an extent to which book knowledge about biology and the extent to which, you know, um, you know, cells degrade at a certain point that that gives us some knowledge of that process going that way. But we also know that experientially too, like you, uh, you, you can experience that in fitness in terms of like, you know, the marathoner who reaches a certain age and can't perform the same way or someone who squatted 600 pounds and going further than that. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I appreciate the question cause it made me think about, um, I went to a previous, uh, um, guru, um, and I call him a guru cause it, it was, um, someone who was a guru in movement. And on the first couple of hours of his four day course, they went over what are like universal truths, <laughs> you know, and he listed like 20, you know, different universal truths. Ironically inside of them, some were physical truths that you and I have discussed previously, but that's a really, so I appreciate your question um, that we probably, or I probably should do a mental exercise on that of some of those things that we actually know, you know, that we know. Um, and, and Robbie, you could probably, you know, tell me that I probably have said a bunch of those, maybe in a coach tip or in CCP or something, but I don't even know I've said them, but I appreciate the question because I, I do think I need to, um, account for those ways and also converse, um, with someone on more of those things of what we know. Yeah. And I think, I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting because some endeavors we get to and we ask all these questions, you know, consciousness or something like that. We're like, well, we just don't know that much, but I, I feel like in fitness there, there actually is this, uh, you know, we can argue about how long the list is or how short it is, but I, I feel like there are certain things. I mean, another example that I'm just thinking of from CCP is, you know, there are certain energy systems, you know, based on biology that humans have, and, you know, they, they have certain, uh, capacities and um, you know based on that that dictates a lot of what we are able to do so it's it's interesting just thinking of like what is the series of those uh, things and uh, how does that inform what we do but also just like you know how there are like these open questions in math that we're like waiting for people to solve like what are the open questions in fitness mm -hmm. that we're, we're waiting to find the answer to um, that you know maybe there just hasn't been as much like you you know, say all the time, there just hasn't been as much experience in this realm as we'd like there to be. What are the open questions remaining in fitness that were, you know, like uh, for Matt's last theorem or something like that, that were waiting to be answered? Are, are there such questions? Maybe, maybe not. So yeah, just thought that was interesting. Yeah, no, I, I love pondering in that area. I just wrote that down to basically uh, think about it a little bit more. Uh, so I appreciate it because I think uh, there needs to be more time spent on that um, so that we just don't just get lost in um, thinking we know everything we need to know based upon physical evidence. Um, Cause I think there's some things inside of there that are truths, but
but I just think the direction of why we're going about investigating them after that investigation just didn't lead to something that's beneficial for the fit for the, I like like to call it like a real world fitness experience, you know? Um, so yeah, I appreciate that. Any final thoughts on knowledge in relation to fitness? No, um, on a recap, I, again, I appreciate, you know, using justified true belief as the, definition as our base support because i think we stuck to that um and then uh giving a definition of epistemology is really good because it gets us into um you know i guess really looking at um reviewing those definitions of justified true belief or cognitive success um and then i appreciated the time to kind of um stretch my brain a little bit on how we know what we know in fitness and the lesson that I learned from it in the conversation today was that the, the physical world constraints and the physical laws um, still have a big part to play in, uh, in how we determine what we know. It's just that the human experience of it, of development and capability um, and all those things just make it challenging. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Upon what we know. And then, I mean, one thing I, I thought of, you know, just because I, I mean, I've, I've been a coach for a while now, but certainly have plenty of time left to, left to go and experience. But as some, something that stuck out to me, we, we mentioned at the beginning, maybe we could help coaches get a better sense of like how to figure out, you know, how, how to gain more knowledge in this space when there's all these different things. And one of the things I heard you saying that I really appreciate you know, I think a lot of coaches, uh, myself included, as well. Oh, what about you know this seminar and the other seminar and the other training? And it, they, they can all be helpful. I mean, CCP has been tremendously beneficial. But I, I hear a lot of what you're saying, being like, you have to go experience these things. You have to. That that is just a foundational piece. If you want to acquire this knowledge, you know, seminars and knowledge and book learning are great and important. But the experience both of the physical activities like CCP experience, but also coaching is, is crucial. So yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Awesome. I'm glad you, uh, you heard that too. That's a big mission of mine. Um, and not, just so everyone knows, I'm still struggling with if it's a, if it's a healthy bias that I have, but uh, I still want coaches to keep going out there and knowing what it's like to do a cartwheel, you know, and, <laughs> and experience things like just keep, keep doing it. Um, and do it for the right reasons of that experience. And uh, that's going to lead you to knowing things. Um, you know, even on, and on that last point, too, I think that I didn't see this coming, Robbie, but we probably could do a better job of it in the future is when it when it is the case, maybe we can put it into a coach bucket and a client bucket for knowledge. Oh, yeah. Because oh, I think those are two. Those are two big categories. Um, and knowing that our our audience may most likely be someone who's even if they're not in a coach shoes they're they're thinking well how do I gain knowledge or what's your definition of knowledge that allows me enough confidence to go out there and help someone else Um, I think that may help us in the future Um, because getting into what a client should know as you go gets as we know gets fairly fairly deep um, based upon intentions and fitness and um, autonomy and et cetera, that we've, that we've previously discussed. So, and there's a whole slew of things that they, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's also things that they just don't need to know. 
exactly. uh, just aren't, aren't relevant. That's um, yeah. See, that's the, that's the, yeah, that's the whole, that's the big one right there is, uh, knowing enough, um, and just jamming on that, you know, like what, what is enough to know for a client to, to live a really fulfilled life through fitness? You know, what is enough to know? Yeah. That's a good, good question. All right. Well, that was a, I enjoyed that one. That was a good discussion. Yeah. Thanks Robbie. Appreciate it.